0: I'd like to begin by asking a question. It's kind of a difficult question, but I I know you can handle it. And it's this When you sin, when you fall short, when you miss the mark, you step outside of the will of God, and you know it, what do you do? What's your next move? Where do you turn next? Maybe the question could be asked better this way. When you sin, when you fall short, what do you think God thinks of you? Because what you think God thinks of you will begin to define what you then do in those moments of your failure. A couple years back when Rachel and I lived in Joplin, a young man came into my office and he needed to talk and I could tell something was weighing heavy on him. He couldn't make eye contact with me and he sat down across from my desk with his head in his hands and he struggled to get the words out, but he eventually said that he loved the Lord, but in times of weakness, he would give in to the temptation of lust. He would go to a computer screen and he would look at images. And he hated himself for it, and he felt sick. And he asked the question, "How could God still want me?" And I could tell in that moment that he wanted to turn and he wanted to run from God. I was driving to class one morning back in college. saw a man walking on the side of the road, pulling a suitcase behind himself. I pull over, I holler out the window, hey, would you like a ride? And, and he, he runs over to my car, I help him get his luggage into the back seat. We both sit down and I say, hey man, where to? And he simply says, away. I just got to get away. And so in the course of me taking him to his destination, he explains to me he just got out of prison. His wife had a restraining order against him, was soon to be his ex wife. The state has taken his children away from him. And he said, man, my life is falling out from under me. And by the time we arrive where we're going, I don't have any words. I don't know what to say. And so as he gets out of the car, I remember there's a Bible in the back seat. I reach back, I grab the Bible, I hold it out to him, and I say, hey, brother, I would love for you to take this. And as he reaches out to receive it, he starts to cry, not like a few manly tears, like the dude breaks down and weeps there in front of me. And between his tears, I can hear him say, Man, look at my life. Look at what I've done. How could God still want me? And I could tell in that moment he had been running from God for a long, long time. Here in Fort Scott, I'm at the coffee shop here in town. I'm studying for a sermon. My Bible is open on the table in front of me. A man walks up, points at my Bible, and asks, Are you a pastor? And before I can say yes, he's already sitting down at the table across from me. He leans with his elbows on the table, pointing at my Bible, and I, I get this whiff of his stench. I mean, I don't think he had showered in weeks. His hair is matted, he's got a mixture of blood and dirt on his face, his, his clothes are tattered and torn. And he points at my Bible and he says, I know a lot about this book. He explains to me that he studied theology at Duke University in North Carolina, and then he goes on to explain his knowledge of scripture, his knowledge of Greek and Hebrew, theology throughout church history, the nuances of all the denominations. This guy knew his stuff. And then he goes, but man, last night I got out of a 24-hour hold because the police picked me up drunk in a ditch. He showed me his arms with the the needle scars. He goes, I've been turning to drugs, alcohol, women, and it's left me broken. It's left me empty, and I don't know much, but one thing I do know, how could God still want me? And I could tell he was about to turn and run from God. Now those stories may not sound like yours, but I know that each of us in this room have had a moment where we look into the mirror and we say to the person staring back at us, I know what you've done. I know your heart. I know where you've been. I know what you've said. How could God still want you? How could God still use you? I've been there. And this morning, we're going to look at the life of a man named Peter. Who in a particular time, he too was asking the question, how Could God still want me? Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would speak this morning. I pray that I could step to the side and you could be central. Um, God, you are so full of love. Help us see that. So full of mercy, so full of grace, so full of truth, but also righteousness and justice. So Lord, help us this morning to just hear you and to respond in faith. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, Last week where we left off, we had Jesus in the upper room with his disciples. And he began to explain to them, hey, I have to go to a cross and I have to suffer and die. And they were confused by this. But as the story continues, we see that that very night in a garden, as Jesus is praying and as he's with his disciples, there are soldiers that come. They arrest him. They drag him to the house of the high priest. He is questioned. Then he's taken to Pilate. There he's condemned to death. The crowd is saying, crucify him, crucify him. They beat Jesus. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They take him to a hill called Golgotha. They nail him to a cross. He hangs there. He bleeds. He dies. And in this moment, I can't help but ask the question, what is going through the minds of his followers? Including Peter. They've got to be thinking, what now? We've given our life to this man. We've walked away from our careers. We've walked away from the homes that we lived in. What now? And Scripture tells us that that they're in hiding. They don't know what to do. Jesus is placed in a tomb. And a couple days later, his followers start hearing rumors. They hear rumors that these two women, they saw Jesus alive. They spoke with him. And then a few more of the disciples, they say that they walked with Jesus, that he broke bread with them, that he opened up the scriptures to them. And then some of them are in an upper room and Jesus appears in their midst. He shows them his nail scars. He shows them where they had pierced his side with a spear. And scripture does not explicitly say this, but I believe it to be true is that Jesus had appeared to nearly all of his disciples except for Peter. I don't think Peter had seen him yet. And Peter has got to be asking that question because of what he had just done. How could God still want me? And this is right where our text picks up. You can read along. It's going to be in John chapter 21. It'll be up on the screen, but if you've got your Bibles, I'd love to see you turn to it. It's a pretty long passage. It starts in verse 1, chapter 21. It says, Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were all together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and they got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends! Haven't you caught any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around himself for he had taken it off and he jumped into the water. The other disciples followed on the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals. There were fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come, have breakfast. This passage has so much in it. And as we begin to unpack the truth of this passage, as well as the context surrounding it, we begin to see the life of Peter more clearly. But not only that, we begin to see our life inside of the narrative of Peter. And most importantly, we see this. We see how Jesus answers our question of how could God still want me? But first, we have to ask this. If I can get this without dropping it. Here's a question. What does life with Jesus look like? What's it supposed to look like? What does the day-to-day life of a follower of Christ actually look like? I think if we went around the room, we would have different answers from all of us. But I will say this, that what you answer to that question means a lot. Because it might be the deciding factor on whether or not you choose to follow Jesus. It might be the deciding factor on whether or not you always see yourself as a failure who is hated by Him. Some people would answer the question this way. That when you follow Jesus... Your life should and will be a steady and progressive road upward where you do nothing but grow. You no longer struggle. You no longer fail. You no longer mess up. It is just peachy and wonderful from here on out. I see people shaking their head no. Others might say this because I don't agree with that. The only one who was perfect was Christ. Some might say this. That life with Jesus is a steady upward growth with only small, very small, mind you, times of temptation, times of failure, only small, never big. You can't have any big temptations. You can't have any big failures. God doesn't forgive those. That means you're not a Christian if you have big ones. Some people think life with Christ looks more like this. But in reality, and if you've walked with Christ in humility for a while, you'll realize that a life with Christ looks a lot like this. We fail. We fall. We're picked up. Now, I don't say that to leave the impression that Jesus thinks sin is no big deal. He went to a cross and he died because it was so severe. But there is a difference between falling And steadily living in sin, failing to acknowledge it. There is a big difference there. But if you follow Christ and have for a while, you will realize that you will fail. You will fall. You will be picked back up. That's what Scripture teaches us. And that's what we see in the life of Peter. And if we look at his life, we see this. All the way back in Luke chapter 5, it's the first time we're introduced to this man named Simon. Who is Peter? His name is changed later. And here Jesus is teaching in Galilee. He has just begun his ministry. And so he's teaching by the Sea of Galilee to this crowd of people. And Peter is there in his boat. Peter's a fisherman. And Jesus realizes, I can teach more effectively if I get into this boat and we push off from shore a little bit. So he asks, Peter, can I get into your boat so I can teach? And Peter says, sure. And so there we see Jesus teaching from a boat with a crowd listening and Peter at his side also hearing what Jesus has to say. When he's done teaching, Jesus turns to Peter and says, Why don't we go fishing? Now, here's what we have to know about Peter. Peter was a career fisherman. This is what he did. Like fishing was his thing. Okay? He was probably like a part of a family where his his dad and his dad's dads and his dad's 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 dad like they were fishermen, that's what he did. And he turns to Jesus and says, We fished all night and we caught nothing. Like, I I know the waters, I know when fish are able to be caught, and it's just not happening right now, okay? And Jesus says, well, let's go fish." Peter says, okay, you say so. They push out into the water, and Jesus says, why don't you throw your nets on this side of the boat? I mean, I imagine in this moment Peter's like, I'm going to throw my nets on the side of the boat, okay. Like, I'm going to catch anything. You know, kind of thinking, whatever, I'll humor the guy. He throws his nets, and Luke writes and tells us that immediately... The nets were so full of fish that the weight of them almost swamped the boat and caused it to capsize. Luke also writes that in that moment, Peter falls on his knees in front of Jesus and he proclaims, Lord, get away from me. I am a sinful man. Depart from me. He acknowledges in that moment, you are Lord. You have power. And he acknowledges, I am a sinful disgrace. Jesus, get away from me. Jesus says, no, I won't get away from you. In fact, I choose you. I want you. Come with me. You'll no longer be a fisherman. You will fish for people. And Peter walked away from being a fisherman. He gave up his life's work. He followed Jesus, walked with him, and was taught by him. Now, Peter, he had many ups and downs in his life. We see in one circumstance that Jesus is teaching, and he once again tells his disciples, hey, I have to go to a cross and die. I have to die. And Peter at this time did not want to hear that. He pulls Jesus to the side, and he says, um, you dying? Not going to happen, Jesus. Why don't you, you know, take back those words, because we need you, um, so you're not going to die. He rebukes Jesus. He thinks he knows better than Jesus. I wonder how often we think we know better than Jesus. Have you been in Peter's position? Jesus rebukes him back. Another time, Jesus is again saying, I have to go to Jerusalem and I have to die. And he turns to all of his disciples, including Peter, and he says, And all of you are going to desert me. All of you are going to run away for your own safety. And Peter stands up in the midst of everyone and says, Lord, not I. I would never desert you. All may run, but not me. I will stand firm even to the end. Even if I have to die with you, Jesus, I will die with you. Jesus just shakes his head. Says, Peter, this very night you will deny me You will reject me. You will turn your back on me three times. And then you'll hear a rooster crow. And you'll remember what I told you. The narrative continues that way. That very night, they're in a garden. Soldiers come. They take Jesus. All the disciples run, except Peter and one other disciple. They take Jesus to the house of the high priest and there they're interrogating him. And Peter and the other disciple, they follow and they sit outside the gate looking in. And as they stand by the gate, a person walks up, sees Peter and says, hey you, I I know you. I've seen you with this man Jesus that they just arrested and took inside. You're one of his followers, aren't you? And Peter says, no, hey, no, not me. You've got me mistaken. I mean, we beards, we all look the same. I mean... You've mistaken. I'm sorry. The person says, okay. And then Peter and the other disciple were at the gate looking inside to a courtyard. In this courtyard, Scripture tells us that there was a charcoal fire. And so they enter. And they go and they join a crowd of people who are warming themselves in the light of a charcoal fire. And so there they stand. A second person overhears Peter talking and he says, Hey, your accent, you're you're a Galilean, aren't you? I I know you. You, You've been with this man, Jesus. I've seen you with him before. And Peter says, No, 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 no. Loud enough for everybody to hear. Hey, I don't know the man. I've never been with him. I'm just one of you. I'm just hanging out by the fire. Could you all leave me alone? Say, "Okay, Okay. They continue there by the fire warming themselves. A third time. Someone says, someone who was actually in the garden when Jesus was arrested, says, I know you were there. I saw you with him in the garden. I know you're a follower of this man, Jesus. And scripture tells us that Peter starts calling down curses on himself. He starts cussing. He starts blaspheming, saying, I don't know this man, Jesus. I don't know who he is. I don't care about him. Stop it. Commentators say this. Essentially, what Peter is doing in that moment is he is becoming so wicked by what he says, he's hoping that no one will think he would ever be with a religious leader. And then he hears a rooster crow. He remembers the words of Jesus. His face is downcast. He's filled with shame. And he runs. And this is in the moment that Peter asks the question, how could God still want me? And it's in moments like this in our life where we ask the exact same question. And it's in the text that we read from John chapter 21 that as we begin begin to unpack, it shows Jesus' answer to the question, If you guys would turn back to it, we're going to jump around a little bit. So as the narrative of that night continues, Jesus is crucified. He's put in a tomb. He comes back to life. And he starts appearing to his disciples. But I believe he didn't appear to Peter. And Peter is in his lowest of low moments. And that's when he turns to these other disciples and he says this simple statement. I'm going out to fish. If I tell you, hey, this afternoon I'm going to go fishing, you're like, cool, have a good time, hope you catch something. Do you remember what Peter did for a living? Do you remember the life that Jesus called him away from? He was a fisherman. And commentators throughout history, theologians who have studied this passage, truly believe that the statement that Peter made, I am going fishing, is not a simple, I'm going to cast a line in the water, it's, I'm going back. I'm going back to the life I once lived. I failed. I messed up. I can't do that anymore. How can I be loved? I'm done. I'm going fishing. Here's the temptation for us when we fall Satan will say, You are done for. You (laughs) messed up too much. You went too far. And Satan will tell you, He can't love you anymore. He doesn't accept you anymore. So just go back to the sins that you have. Go back to the life you used to live because at least you know that. At least you're comfortable with it. Peter says, I'm going fishing. The other disciples say, okay. We'll go with you. Scripture says that night they caught nothing. This is a moment of divine intervention. This is where God says... You turn back to the life you once lived that brought you satisfaction. You now know that it doesn't give you what you want. You now know that you can't get fulfillment from that life. This is God intervening so that he can set up a scenario. And then from the beach they hear a voice. And it calls out, if you're reading from the NIV, the word is friends. If you look at the Greek, it translates more literally into the word children, which is kind of strange But if you read more of like an ESV or a King James version, you'll see it says like little children or little boys. And so what commentators have said throughout history is Jesus is setting up this this kind of comical scenario where obviously Jesus knows all things. He knows they haven't caught any fish and he's showing them that they can't provide for themselves. And so from the shore, Jesus goes, hey, kids, hey, little boys, you haven't caught anything, have you? And they kind of look at each other. No, we haven't. Jesus says, throw your net on the other side. They throw the net in. And as soon as they do so, they catch so many fish. A net full of fish. And then the one whom Jesus loves, the youngest disciple, John, the one who wrote this book, the Gospel of John, turns to Peter and says, Peter, it is The Lord. And Peter jumps out of the boat and begins to swim to Jesus. Now here's the question. What just caused Peter to change everything about himself in that moment? He was running from Jesus. He went back to being a fisherman. And now he jumps out of a boat and he swims to Jesus. What happened? Jesus just recreated one of the greatest moments of Peter's life. Do you remember Luke chapter 5? Jesus just recreated one of the most pivotal moments of Peter's life. And Peter's mind went back to the time where Jesus says, I choose you. And Peter says, he's choosing me. He jumps out of the boat. And he swims because a moment was recreated. Have you ever had a moment been recreated? Maybe you have. Maybe you haven't. But it's incredible One of the coolest moments of my life was this. About a year after Rachel and I got married, we were sitting at our 800-square-foot apartment in Joplin, um, stressing over homework. We're both full-time students. We're both working full-time. Remember, I was writing a paper. She was studying for a final. And we were just busy. You guys know life is busy. We really had been going through the routine of wake up, school, work, homework, sleep, over and over and over again. And we just hadn't spent much time with each other. So we're both sitting there with our laptops open. The only other thing that's happening is I've got Pandora playing. Pandora is an internet radio station that just circulates songs. Like, you don't choose the songs, it chooses it for you. It's pretty miraculous. And a song comes on. And it's from one of my favorite bands, Need to Breathe. And it's a song called Stones Under Rushing Water. And it was written by the lead singer to his wife. And he's writing this song simply saying... We need to reconnect. And there's one line in the song that he sings to his wife where he simply says, Honey, why don't we dance anymore? Why don't we dance anymore? And that that comes up every chorus. And so around the second or third time that line is sung, I just kind of glance up over my computer screen at my wife and smile at her and she smiles back. And we just keep doing homework. As the crescendo of that song goes down and it fades out, the very next song that comes on is the song that we both chose together to dance to at our wedding. And without a word expressed, we both just close our computers, we get up and we dance in the living room for that whole entire song. And it was one of the coolest moments. I'm not trying to be gushy. I'm not a gushy person, but it was one of the coolest moments. And I look back on that all the time. I'll bring it up from time to time to Rachel. I'm like, <laughs> isn't that cool? And it was just Awesome. And I thank God that he blessed us just to create that little moment to remind us of the love we have. To remind us of the relationship that we chose one another. Jesus recreated a moment in Peter's life where he says, do you remember that I chose you? Do you remember that I want you? Do you remember that you're mine? And Peter jumps out of the boat and he swims arm over arm, arm over arm, all the way to the shore. Man, I love that. They get to the shore. Something else pretty incredible happens. One of the first verses, as soon as it says that they got to the shore, it says this. When they landed, they saw a fire burning of charcoal. Now, here's a little nuance when it comes to words. The Greek word for charcoal is found only twice in Scripture. The instance where Peter was in the courtyard warming his hands in the light of a charcoal fire where he denied Jesus three times. The only other time in all of Scripture that that word for charcoal is used is when he climbs wet and cold out of the water, walks up onto the shore, and there is Jesus with fish in the light and the warmth of a charcoal fire. If you guys barbecue, I love the barbecue. You know the smell of charcoal from 100 yards away, don't you? It is distinct. What are you grilling? I can smell it. Is that a coincidence? Is Jesus doing something? Jesus recreates two moments. He recreates one of the greatest moments of Peter's life where he says, I choose you. And he recreates one of the lowest moments of Peter's life where Peter failed. Why would Jesus do that? And here it is. Jesus doesn't ignore sin. He doesn't forget about it as if it's nothing. He doesn't say, I don't worry about it. He says, we're going to deal with it. We're going to talk about it. But we're going to do it my way, not your way. And as we continue to unpack how Jesus interacts with Peter, we begin to see how he answers that question. That we so often ask. When they had finished breakfast. Jesus said to Simon Peter. Simon. Son of John. Do you love me more than these? So they finished eating. And I can only imagine. That Peter. Recognizing this charcoal fire. And his mind going back. To when he fell. Is probably sitting there. Not saying anything to Jesus. And I imagine Jesus cleaning up breakfast as he turns to Peter and he asks this question. Simon Peter, do you love me more than these? And commentators, some disagree on what Jesus meant by more than these. Some say that he's asking, do you love me more than the rest of the disciples? Some say that he's asking, do you love me more than you love the disciples, your friends? But I think Jesus is is saying this, and this is what a lot of commentators agree on. That Jesus is down, he's cleaning up breakfast of fish. And he turns to Peter and he says, Peter, do you love me more than these? And he holds up fish. Do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than the life you used to live? Do you love me more than fish that you had just decided to go back to? Do you love me more than this, Peter? Peter? That's what I think Jesus meant. He asks Peter, Do you love me more than the life you once lived because I loved you enough to call you? And Peter says, Yes, Lord, I love you. And then Jesus says something kind of interesting. He says, Feed my sheep, or feed my lambs, depending on your translation. Feed my sheep. Seems like a weird thing to say at that moment. And and I've read the passage this way before, and it's kind of bothered me in the past. It almost seems like Jesus is setting up an ultimatum. Which, if you look at the definition of ultimatum, it simply means this it means a person who is in power, setting up terms with someone who is under them. And if they do not adhere to the terms, the the relationship will be severed. It sounds like an ultimatum that Jesus is saying, Do you love me, Peter? Peter says, Yes. He goes, Prove it. Prove it or else. That's what it sounds like. Maybe it sounded like that to you before. But that's not what Jesus is doing here. Jesus asks him, Peter, do you love me more than the fish that you were returning to? Because you thought that I didn't love you anymore. Do you still have love for me, Peter, more than for these fish? Peter says, yes. Jesus says, feed my sheep. What did Jesus call Peter to? He called him to ministry for the kingdom of God because he considered him worthy to work for the kingdom of God. And then he points him in the direction of doing work for the kingdom of God. He says, Peter, you're still worthy. You're still someone I chose. Work with me, hand in hand. Let's move forward. The past is in the past. The future is ahead of us. Peter, let's go. A second time he asks him, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He says, Feed my sheep. Again, he says, Peter, the past is in the past. Let's move ahead together. A third time he asks Peter, Peter, do you love me? Peter is hurt by this because he asks a third time. He says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus says, then feed my sheep. What happens here is this. Three times Peter fell. Three times Jesus says, I still want you. I still want you. And I want you to still choose me because there is responsibility on our part. Jesus deals with sin, but he also deals with it in a way that says, come to me. Because I still want you. And when we ask that question in the midst of our sin or looking back on it, how could Jesus still want me? How could He still use me? Well, Jesus is saying, come to me. Let's move forward and you'll see. The band comes back up to close us out. I don't know where everybody is in the room. But I know for some people, they may be on that doorstep looking in. They've never received Christ. And maybe it's because they say, How could He ever want me? (laughs) Well, Jesus is inviting you to come in. He's saying, Let's have breakfast together. Let's move forward. Maybe you're that person and you've walked away because of shame that you've had in your life, because you've sinned and you feel like you've gone too far. How could Jesus still love me? How could He still want me? Well, Jesus is saying, Well, come, let's have breakfast. Let's move forward. And I would just, I would challenge you, I would advise you, take a moment. And it could be to come forward and and, and pray with an elder who will be down here. It could be that you were just right there saying, Jesus, just give me the faith to see that you still have love for me and let me move forward. And here's the thing that he's calling you to when it comes to sin. He's saying, walk away from that sin. Don't obsess over that sin. Don't think about that sin as though you're like, well, I'm going to think about it just to try to avoid it. No, he says, just walk away from that and come to me. Sit down, have breakfast with me. Focus on me. Hand in hand, walk forward with me. Make it about Christ. And if you need to make a decision this morning where He becomes the focal point of your life, then I hope that that can happen.